I love those words that are almost directly from Romans 8. He loves me. He is for me. There are some people in this world that that's it. That's the only hope they have. And it's enough. In fact, you know how it is when something is really a difficult challenge you're facing and you do everything you can to meet this challenge. And then there comes a time when you say, Lord, I'm just going to have to trust you. And it's the most wonderful place in the world. And you should have been there a lot earlier. But sometimes it takes getting to that place of utter despair apart from the Lord to find that he is all that you need. Well, I was going to start off by talking about our two weeks. We've been away for two weeks. But the words of that song just spoke to my heart so deeply. Um, Allison and I have been out two weeks. We've been in some really ugly places. And so it's great to be back to Bowie's Creek and Fuquay Arena, you know, right here in the garden spot of the world. Um, and I know you had a wonderful two services the last two weeks. I've heard one of the messages. I heard David's message, outstanding message. I heard all about Ricky's message, outstanding message. I'm going to be hearing that very soon. And so grateful uh, if you were here for the first time, second, third, fourth time, whatever, we are glad you have chosen to worship with us. If you're relatively new here, let me go ahead and let you know something that pretty much everybody else knows. I am a football fan. Uh, Allison saw the first word of the message, the first line of the message, and she said, are you really going to tell that lie? She was joking, of course. I am very much a football fan. I thought about starting this morning by saying, are you ready but I thought, no, that wouldn't be appropriate. As big a fan as I am, my, my buddy Jimmy and I, my preacher friend Jimmy and I, were going to give up. We'd already made the decision to give up our tickets, season tickets to Carolina football this year. We've been going about 10 years or so, 10, 11 years. And so this year, we were going to give them up. But apparently, a lot of other people decided the same thing about Carolina football, and the University of North Carolina made us an offer we couldn't refuse. So we'll be back in Keenan uh, Stadium on Saturdays, and I'll also be at Barker Lane Stadium as well to watch Campbell uh, as they are an improving program, and hopefully Carolina will be an improving program this year. Um, you know, I-, I love the pageantry of college football. Just love All that goes on, especially on a crystal clear, crisp, beautiful fall afternoon. When the players are on the field before the game, they're going through all their drills, you know, and they're stretching and everything. And then every once in a while, they'll sort of circle up into into groups, like a position group. Like all the wide receivers will get together and they'll link arms and they'll kind of, you know, do this number. And they're swaying in a circle and it's just great to watch. I mean, there's this... There's this camaraderie and, and, and support for one another and excitement. And there's also symmetry and rhythm as the players sway back and forth. One of the things that you'll see occasionally is, you know, a player comes running in because he was late getting to the circle. And, and, and at that point, they have to break the circle and include this guy. And it sort of breaks the rhythm at the moment, but then, you know, they're right back into it because they're professional swayers. They may not be very good when, it, when the game starts, but they're good at the swaying stuff. <laughs> the rhythm 
though, is broken a little bit when someone comes in. As long as all the players from the same position group are wearing Carolina blue, they're welcome into that circle. But what do you think when a big old defensive lineman lumbers over? You know, you've got all these Velt and, and Swift receivers over here, and this big old lineman comes over there. Say, hey, man, your group is over there. Go on over there. That's where your group is. Don't you see those guys? <clears throat> all those big lugs over there. What do you suppose would happen if a Virginia Tech Hokie or an NC State Wolfpack player tried to get into the circle? It would not be pretty. I'm telling you what. Jimmy and I, I wouldn't be able to preach the next day because I'd be saying, hey, hey, what are you doing down there? You know, you can't do that. You're on the other team. Swaying time is reserved for the players on our team. Church can feel very much like a pregame sway, don't you think? I mean, we've circled up, we've linked arms, and life is good. It's a beautiful, crisp fall day. We're, we're in unity, and we've all got the same rhythm. We're going, and, and we're preparing for the battle. We know that there are tough times ahead, and we're getting ready for it. And then sometimes there are people who want to come into the circle that we've never seen before. I mean, they have the right uniform on but will they know the rhythm? You know, will they have rhythm? Will they fit in? And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, wait a minute, you've got the wrong uniform on. What are you doing in here? Here's the deal. The church is not like a football team with limited jerseys for the best players. Although the, the analogy works, the metaphor works at times, right? It works at some level anyway. Scripture tells us that Jesus' church is like a building in which the blocks are being added one by one. They're all tied into the cornerstone. (laughs) And it's also like a family that is constantly growing. We are supposed to grow. God is building our family this way. It's just like we opened our arms for the newest Damaris this week. Every time I start to say a name, I'll just, somebody help me. What's Gregory Damaris? Yes. And everybody's like, just say, oh, welcome to the family. Welcome to the, we're supposed to grow. God, even though if some pieces don't seem to fit or we wonder how are we going to feed this new mouth? If God has designed this building, this family, he's going to make it work. And it's a beautiful design that he's done. Our responsibility is to follow his lead. Today's message is titled, Making Room in the Family. Today summarizes these last two weeks, the making the most of every opportunity to share the gospel, the good news that God adopts into his family, those that he has chosen and those who believe that Jesus died for them. We are only in his family today because someone else told us The gospel, Romans 10 essentially says, if there's no sharing of the gospel, there are no conversions. We hear these amazing stories and you hear them all the time, especially in the Middle East, about people coming up to believers and say, you're the one who's supposed to tell me the truth. Interesting though, they don't come up and say, they had a vision and I believe very much this is from the Lord. The Lord gave them a vision and says, someone will tell you the truth. But they don't come up and say, 
God told me the truth and now I need to connect with you guys. They say, tell me, what am I supposed to believe? What am I supposed to know? I don't know. No sharing the gospel, no conversions. In fact, I very much wanted this message to be about evangelism and and talking about us helping encourage people to trust Christ and growing the church in this way. But the text just wouldn't allow it. We're finishing up, for those of you who are new, a topical series about, a, about church life. A place in the family is the title of the series. And we'll go back to uh, straight expository preaching through the gospel. I mean, through the book of Hebrews. Although you could say the gospel of Hebrews. Uh, coming up this fall. <clears throat> But when you're preaching topical messages, there are certain things that you want to cover. And so I wanted to talk about evangelism. And this text was the one we needed to consider today. And it just wouldn't allow me to go there at the level that I wanted to. Even so, there are significant evangelistic implications embedded in the theme of these verses. This morning, we're going to receive our instruction from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. But we've got a problem because verse 11 begins with the word, therefore. So, I'm going to read the first 10 verses as well for context. As frustrated as I am not to be spending five to six weeks in, in the second chapter of Ephesians, like I would like to do, you are not going to be disappointed that we've dipped our toes into the waters of Ephesians 2. So, we're going to read the first 10 verses. I'm going to ask you uh, to remain seated. And then, when we get to verse 11, which begins our text for the day, I'll ask you to stand as is our custom. You're familiar with these verses in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in in your trespasses, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. A lot of this text is talking about the difference between the religious Jews who had come to Jesus. And the very irreligious Gentiles who had come to Jesus. (laughs) Paul is saying, God is saying through Paul. Our salvation is a not, not, a work of, not a result, I mean, of being good people, of being religious, of going to church and doing the right things. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if you would, please stand and we will read the rest of the chapter. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, the Jews tended to look. Remember you Gentiles, Jews thought you were pretty dirty. And then he says in verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostilities or hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man, in the place of the two, so making peace, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Because I'm not going to spend time explaining these verses in detail. Let me just say quickly, essentially he's saying, <clears throat> Gentiles, you were way away from God. You didn't know anything about God. He's brought you near to the blood of, by the blood of Christ. <coughs> Jews, even though you were near, to the law, you knew about God. The law was never going to save you. The law can't save, has no power to do that. It only condemns because you can't keep the law. And so we have both been brought to life in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. <clears throat> um, in verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those of you who were near. You both needed peace with God and peace with one another. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, um, this text is so rich and so complex and so simple in the end and so profound. We are grateful that we have been brought together into this unity of the body of Christ, specifically Grace Community Church, but as we will discover in our text, the entire body of Christ worldwide, all of history, all who have ever trusted Jesus, we belong to them, they belong to us, and we all belong to you. I pray that as we open your word today, that we would see Jesus And that we would desire, as Ricky has already prayed, for the students and for all of us, 
For Jesus to live through us and for others to see him in us. As we hold one another accountable. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. <clears throat> Make sure your Bibles are open because the three points of today's message are closely tied to the text. But the, but the scripture is not going to be on the screen. Three things to consider. The first of which is remember who you were. Before Jesus redeemed you. Do you ever wonder how people who don't know Christ make it in a crisis? I mean when you hear about these horrible things. Like a teenager being killed in a car accident. Or a child drowning in a, in a pool. Or, or, or just awful things. Someone loses home. And someone is falsely accused and goes to prison. And then they get out. How do people make it without the Lord? People who don't know Jesus get by because they have to. They have a certain, we have a context in which we view life. They have a context and they do the best that they can. It's like going into the $2 theater, the Blue Ridge Theater, you know, on Blue Ridge Road in Raleigh. You go into this theater. It's one of the old-timey ones, you know. It's not stacked and there's not low lighting as you go in. But it's just dark as pitch and you walk in and if the trailers have already started, you can't find... You're trying to remember, how many rows were they up, you know? Or or worse, you don't know where they are. And you're like, I don't even know if I'm in the right aisle and am I still in the aisle or am I on top of somebody by now? You just can't see anything. After a while, though, your eyes begin to adjust and you can make some progress in finding your family and friends. Just imagine, though, if you had never been outside the theater. You'd never seen the sunlight. You know what? After a while, the, the light that's on the screen would be enough for you to function like you need to do. In fact, you'd start to get a feel for the place, and you'd be able to function. But if you'd been in the light of the sunshine, you just can't imagine how anybody could live that way. How can you live that way? possibly live let me just show you what it's like out here if they could only see the real world is like what the real world is like just one time if you have been redeemed by Jesus it's it's good to remember what life was like before him before you met him the first part of Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sin and we're by nature The children of wrath. John 3.16, probably the most well-known verse in Scripture. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And people quote that verse, and it's like, hey, everything is good for everybody. We, We get this idea that in America, that the default position is, you're good with God if you don't mess it up. But then verse 18, just two verses later, says... Anyone who believes on Jesus is not condemned, and the one who doesn't believe on Jesus is condemned already. That's our default position. Wrath, objects of wrath, children of wrath. By nature, we were that dead in our trespasses and sins. And you know, it's difficult for those who were dead to do anything about their condition. Ephesians 2.12 tells us that we were Gentiles who were far away. Far away from the covenant promises that God had made to the world or that we Gentiles were. We were nowhere near to God. 
and without hope. Have you ever been totally without hope? And what it's like to just be without any hope in the world? This past Thursday marked the 48th anniversary of Johnny Erickson Tata diving into the lake and becoming paralyzed. Maybe some of you younger guys don't know who Johnny Erickson Tata is. Uh, If you've never read anything by her, I would strongly urge you to do so. A quadriplegic for 48 years, Johnny is, is both eloquent and transparent about the pains and joys of suffering. She has been and is a beautiful instrument in the hands of her Redeemer. I'm planning to put a link on, on, on the city this week with uh, an interview that she did with Eric Metaxas or Eric Metaxas uh, did with her. So you can see that. But the day, and this is what you'll hear if you, if you see that interview, the day before Johnny and her family went to this lake, on a whim, she had this kind of blonde hair, nondescript blonde hair, what she thought of it anyway. She, she got a bottle of peroxide and just peroxided her hair, just bleached, you know, bleached her hair. And so they were out at the lake and they were out on a dock in relatively shallow waters. And her sister, Kathy, was out there with her. But she, she said, I remember thinking just before I dove, Kathy's going in, I'm going to be the only one out here. Well, sure enough, Kathy was walking out, Johnny dove, and it, she hit her head on, a, on the rock and it twisted it back, crushing her vertebrae and uh, crushing her, her spinal cord. And she, she lay, found herself lying face down on the bottom of the lake with no ability to right herself at all. And her sister's walking away and she's thinking, I'm going to die. There's nobody that knows that I'm here. They're not going to know that for a while. Well, wouldn't you know that just at that moment, a crab bit her sister on the leg. (laughs) And she turned around and she said, when I turned around, I saw that bleach blonde hair lying on the bottom of the lake. And so she ran over, pulled her out, and Johnny was able to breathe even though for 48 years She's had very limited use of any parts of her body. You know what Ephesians 2 does? It paints that picture about us. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We are lying on the bottom of the lake. There's a little breath inside of us now. But if somebody doesn't rescue us, it's not happening. And in God's sovereignty, He sent someone to give us the gospel. The living gospel through the living word of God. And we believed and were made alive. And we were placed into this amazing family. Called the church of Jesus Christ. You know, as Gentiles, we tend to look at Jews as the ones who have missed the boat. If you will read Romans chapters 9 through 11, it will, as my dad used to say, take the starch out of your britches. I mean, I look, I firmly believe in eternal security. So know that. I'm saying that. I'm saying that all along. But here's, here's what you have to recognize 
that the warning passages in Scripture have something to say to believers. When God says, you must endure to the end, He's not saying that you can lose your salvation, but what He is saying is, do not take this thing lightly. If you struggle with doubt, no doubt these words that I'm sharing right now might create some kind of concern in your mind. Like, oh no, I wonder if I'm not saved. Yes, those words are not written for you. The words of comfort and security are written for you. But if you're thinking about straying, if you're thinking about, you know, this person over here is looking really good to me. And if I play it just right, nobody will know. Those words of warning are written to you. If you're thinking about just walking away from everything, God's saying to you, don't you do that. Don't you do that. One time I had a, an insurance salesman. I had a policy. And I was thinking about changing policies. And this guy said, don't do it. And I thought, what do you mean don't do that? And he said, don't you do it. And then he cussed. He cussed me. And I was so mad. And I said, okay, I won't do it. You know, and I hung up the phone. I left my insurance policy in place. And you know what? I'm so glad he told me to not do it. Because the day came when his word proved to be absolutely right. And God says to you, as you take this life lightly, don't play with this. Don't play with this. Very seriously considering subtitling the Hebrew study, holding fast to our confession of hope. That's biblical. Those are the words of Hebrews. Hold fast to the confession of hope that you have. I don't want it to confuse anybody, but look. The Lord tells us, remember who you were. That's not who you are anymore. Look at what God has done for you. Romans 5 and Colossians 1 go so far as to tell us that we were enemies of God before we knew Christ. Enemies of God. We don't tend to think in those terms. But here's the way God sees it. You're either a child of God serving Him or you're a child of Satan serving Him. That's who we are. It's one or the other. Jesus told the most religious people of the day, you are the children of the devil and you live to serve him. You do what I live to serve my father. We were all of that. And he snatched us off the bottom of the lake and gave us life. And not only life, the ability to move and love and serve him. So, what is to be expected of those of us who have been taken out of this darkness and put into the kingdom of light? That's the focus of the second point. Give thanks for the life that you enjoy in Christ, which was bought with His blood. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Although we were bound for destruction, we were rescued by Jesus. Hebrews 2.14 tells us essentially that by his death, Jesus destroyed death for those who believe in him. That's 
It, it sounds a little strange, doesn't it? By death, he conquered death. Not really. We were all heading for death, separation from God for eternity, but Jesus, the only one eligible as God, as perfect man, stepped in and said, I will take that death in their place. These next several weeks, there are so many things that I want to talk about as we wrap up. One of the messages is going to be from Revelation 21 and 22, titled, Dying Well and Living Infinitely Better. The life that we have waiting on us is amazing. And dying is a part of family life. Death is a part of family life. Every time someone who is older dies and the family gathers, it's just like this circle of life, incredible circle of life. There's mourning There's by the adults and the kids are playing oblivious to what's going on. It's just part of the cycle in this world. We're going to talk about that. We're going to also talk about what happens when a family member goes astray. God has put place, put, put a process in place so that we might say, no, don't do that. We can be the instruments of those who say, no, come back. Don't go there. Let us love you and help you through this. We're all facing challenges and difficulties. We're all sinners saved by grace and we know how easy it is to talk about that. We're going to talk about the upside down values of the kingdom and we're going to talk about our responsibility to take this gospel to the to the ends of the earth. I have no idea what the schedule is going to be but it's you'll, we'll know soon enough because we'll be into Hebrews before you know it. So Jesus has destroyed death for those who believe in him. Furthermore, in Ephesians 2.14, we're told that Jesus has broken down the walls between God and man, mankind, God, between God and men and women, and he has broken down the walls that formerly separated us. In the past, if you look around this room, we all pretty much look the same. We have relatively similar backgrounds. We, we like the same kind... A lot of times, the preaching is, is, is probably the number one reason people choose a church, but then music is a very, very close second. We like certain styles of music. <coughs> and, and, and we find ourselves, but God's church is not like that at all. It, it's every color, it's every socioeconomic, it's political views that are different. It's all kinds of differences that are found in the church that God has made up by breaking down all the walls through Christ. Jesus has diffused the hostility between God and us. Look, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that we'd have all kinds of opinions about what's going on with Cecil the Lion and Planned Parenthood and all of that. We'd have, you, you'd think, well, we'll all agree on that. No, we won't. We won't all agree on all of that. Certain things we should agree on as believers. But we come from all different kinds of places. And even though we look a lot alike, there is a very sharp division between those who are over 35 and those who are under 30. And then those in the middle are just somewhere in the mix. In the ways that we look at life, it's just... How it is, but Jesus has broken down all of those barriers between us. Jews and Gentiles were worshiping Jesus together as a family 
in Ephesus. And it wasn't always easy. Just imagine in our context, imagine a very refined southern lady. You can put a hat on her if you want to. I mean, this, is, this lady is, is, she is up there. And she's sitting right next to a recently converted stripper or drug dealer. And Paul's saying, you guys need to love each other. You're worshiping the same Jesus and you came from the same place. I <gasps> never. Well, scripture says, yes, you did. You came from the same place. But, so, so Jesus has overcome your differences. But how can that be when one was, has always been so good and one has recently been so very bad? Well, that's a mistake that we make, isn't it? I had this conversation this past week, Alice and I did. It's a mistake to think that some of us were good, some of us were bad. We were all dead. We were all by nature children of wrath. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We all come from the same place. But it does not take long for us to divide into groups, does it? If you were a first century Gentile, you would think that this whole being related to Christ and having hope of heaven is a pretty good deal. If you were a converted Jew, you would still think it's a pretty good deal, but it would be likely difficult for you to think of Gentile believers as anything less than second class citizens. And most of us who have been in church for a long time, represent we're represented by the Jews here. We tend to look at other people and say, hmm, don't meet my standards. Well, God's saying, he meets mine, she meets mine. You're designed to live together in this beautiful life that has hope in eternity. Rather than focus on your differences, rejoice in the common bond, the Lord says, that you have in Jesus. Back to the college football circle. We're back swaying, you know, now we're swaying. And somebody from the other team tries to break him. But you know what? Every single one of us was brought into the circle having just been on the other team. I mean, our uniforms were changing. Everybody knows it. But God brought us in just at the right time and in the nick of time even though we were on the other team. Only by God's grace were we allowed into the circle, into the family. It's not a right to be in the circle. It's always a privilege. And we were brought into the circle when we were as good as dead. That ought to make our last point a bit easier to embrace, which is make room for the members that God is adding to our family. In Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, the Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, refined and redneck, men and women that God had fashioned together to be the church were reminded that they were previously strangers and aliens, but now they were fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The metaphor shifts from a family to a building in which all the blocks of this building are tied to the cornerstone and then it moves right on to 
uh, talk, calling us a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So often when the New Testament writers wrote to the church and they talked about the church, they were speaking to the local church and talking about life that's going on here in the local church. It would be difficult to make that case here. More than likely, he's talking about the universal church here where everybody from all cultures are brought into this one body, one faith in Jesus Christ. Um, Sometimes when the Spirit is moving and everything is nice and comfortable, we're certain that this is exactly the way God designed the church. And it is when we're all doing this. That's exactly the way that He designed the church to be. But what happens when we recognize that we need two services? Two circles, two circles. I mean two circles. Here's the deal. We don't get to say who's in our circle and who's not. When we need to divide the circle, make more circles, we don't get to say that. How large or how small our church will be. God builds the church. Without question, when we're excited, not only about sharing the gospel, but about living the gospel, there's growth because people are attracted to life. But we must not allow ourselves to be in the position of wanting life, but just for us. We can't be that way. And look, it will be the biggest challenge if and when. If you're relatively new to the church, it's going to look a lot different in two or three weeks in the size of the congregation that's in here. A lot of people out and a lot of people coming back for school. We're going to have a lot of people and I don't believe me. Look, there was a time when I was excited about going to two services and growing and seeing all that God would do with us. I'm old enough. I'm not that crazy about two services. But when, if, if and when that day comes, don't anticipate it this fall. But if and when it comes, that's what we got to do. Because remember, it's not just us. God's the one who builds the circle, who makes the circle. And we ought to say, this is a time to say, hey, God's brought another brick into the, into the building. And I, you know, I'm not exactly sure how that's going to work, but it's God's design. I know it's going to be awesome. God's got a reason for this particular brick being in this place. Not everyone is going to come to grace. Uh, not everyone who comes to grace is going to stay and become a member, but some will. As God builds us together into the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now you've probably always thought of the temple of the Holy Spirit as being your body. As 1 Corinthians 6 teaches. But 1 Corinthians 3 also calls the church the local church. The temple of the Holy Spirit. You won't see it if you go there in your English. But you is plural. It could say y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If we were going to do it in Southernese. It's the way we would say it. So we are the temple of the Holy Spirit that God is building together. This fall, just like this summer, there are going to be a number of new people seeking to determine if Grace Community Church is the place that God wants them to call home. Will they become a part of this family? Ultimately, that's God's business. There's so much about the church growth movement That is troubling to me, increasingly troubling to me. God builds His church, 
But it is absolutely our responsibility to share Jesus and to make room when God brings people into our body. And what a privilege and opportunity it is to be a part of what God is doing in this world. And if God were to quit doing that, then what made him decide to quit doing it now instead of three years ago when he brought me into life? Make room for the family that God is bringing to our church. There are a few places where family life is more visible and more meaningful than at the Lord's table. When we gather here as we do the first Sunday of every month to remember that word again, remember Jesus' death, which made a way for us to be brought into the family of God. Because we believe that all who belong to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ are a part of this family, this universal church, we will open this table to any who would confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Acknowledging that your only hope of heaven is not in your good works, not in your church membership or your baptism even, it's in your faith in Jesus Christ. All of that baptism, this communion is a part of the life that we enjoy in Jesus. As we believe in Him, repenting of sins, confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. In Jesus, the wall of hostility between God and men has been broken down. And any walls between us have been broken down. Which is why we gather together at this table. We acknowledge that we are one in Jesus. So (laughs) as we prepare to partake at the table, let's bow our heads before the one God who has made us one in Jesus Christ. Father, We're so grateful to be a part of the family of God. And Lord, um, whether you grow our church or we stay at this comfortable size where we know everybody and we can engage with everybody and be excited about just being one in Christ or whether we stay the same or whether we grow And it becomes increasingly difficult to keep up with the new ones that you're bringing in. We rejoice that we have life in Jesus and that we are in your family as children. Heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And as we come to this table, we ask that you would Cause us, Lord, to take time and allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts. And then for us to confess any sin between ourselves and you. And then sorrowfully because of the sin that caused Jesus to go to the cross. And with great joy that Jesus died for us in great anticipation that He will return again. May we partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine that reminds us we belong to Him. It reminds us of of the great love You had for us and our place in the family.
give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As the elders and deacons come forward along with the worship team uh, to participate in communion, let me again invite all who confess Jesus to come with us today to this table. We're going to have four stations in the front. Please go to the station that's in front of you. Ushers will um, prompt you to go, and then you'll go back up this middle aisle or uh, the outside aisles. You can eat and drink at the station, or you may take it back to your seat and partake there. Let me read from Matthew's account the um, story of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Looking forward to that day. Going to have just a moment of uh, silence for you to pray with heads bowed and eyes closed, please, to pray and confess to the Lord any sin that you need to, knowing that our sin is forgiven because of what we celebrate here. Don't let that keep you from this table. Just confess it and then give thanks. So take a moment and then I will pray for us. Father, thank you for life in Jesus. Life that is the result of death conquering death. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring what you did, the great horror and torture of crucifixion, but even so much more, the horror of the Father turning his back on you because our sins were upon you. As you died in our place. At this table. We remember. The price that was paid for us to be made one with you. We recognize also that you have called us to this table. To make us one with one another. In Christ who has broken down all barriers. He is our peace. And we're grateful. To participate. And to eat at this table of peace. In Jesus name.